0: Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Microbe Moment. I'm Tess.
1: And I'm John.
0: And once again, we're at the end of the month, so that means it's time for Da Bomb.
1: Where we bring you all our favorite microbe news we learned in the past month.
0: But first, what are we drinking tonight, John?
1: Tonight, we are drinking plague water.
0: Mmm, Yummy. Shout out to Gretchen and Alex, who introduced us to this delightfully morbid cocktail. If you have a cocktail you'd like us to try out on this show with that has its roots in microbiology, let us know by sending us an email to microbigals at gmail.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. Is that copyright? <laughs> Probably. At gmail.com. We won't go into too much about what the Black Plague is, because I'm pretty sure most people already have heard about such things. And I think our good friend Becky LaFarge is going to touch upon this very soon. But John, can you tell everyone what is in our plague water cocktail tonight?
1: Certainly. First take Strong Proof Spirit Butterbur Roots Dry One Pound, Garden Valerian Roots Dry, Common Valerian Roots Dry, Angelica Roots... Six ounces Um, of...
0: John, I meant the modern one, not the plate water recipe of the London distillery that published in 1667.
1: Oh, right. This one is one ounce green chartreuse, half ounce of bitters, half ounce of pineapple juice, one fourth ounce of honey, sage syrup, and a quarter ounce of lemon juice.
0: Yep. It's not super easy to make, but it definitely is super easy to drink. All right, let's get going. Are you starting?
1: I am starting.
0: What is your microbe news you'd like to share?
1: All right. First, we're starting in the world of extremophiles and space probes Oh,
0: I love space probes.
1: Yeah. With an article called Extremophiles Might Combat Superbugs by Warfare Agents.
0: Ooh. So it kind of goes into medical stuff too, huh? Yeah. Excellent. Tell me more.
1: All right. $50,000 trip on the same boat that James Cameron used to help film the Titanic allowed Joe Ng to obtain samples from a hydrothermal vent field thousands of feet below the Atlantic Ocean surface.
0: $50,000? I thought you were going to say Craig Venter because he's got a $50,000 trips too.
1: No, and this $50,000 only allowed him a couple of weeks on that ship.
0: <laughs> why did he choose the one that james cameron used seems oddly specific
1: i don't was it know extra
0: because it was james cameron's ship
1: it could be uh i don't know maybe it's the most technologically advanced ship to be able to do this right now he collected these samples and they sat in the freezer in a huntsville alabama lab for 15 years
0: wait so he collected these samples back in early 2000 yep oh And it cost $50,000, and he just sat on that data for 15 years?
1: Yeah, he didn't have any more money to run those samples. (laughs) But after 15 years, when funding for research came, but it wasn't from academia or pharmaceuticals, it was from the military. Because the military were looking to protect and treat troops from biological weapons, such as anthrax.
0: Oh, yeah, that's that's something that needs to be protected against.
1: And so military defense officials are turning to biologists to address the real concern of superbugs or drug-resistant bacteria, as Big Pharma doesn't seem to be doing enough new antibiotic research. And superbugs are also on track to kill more people than cancer by 2050. Really? Yeah.
0: Wow. So what are they considering superbugs? Did they go into that too much?
1: They did not. They just uh, specified, you know, antibiotic-resistant microbes.
0: So, like MRSA and anthrax, I guess, because that's what the military originally funded it for, right?
1: Right. Yeah. So, Ing's lab extracted the DNA of some of the samples and inserted fragments of this DNA into bacteria, and that's called a clone. And tested them for antibiotic activity. And this lab has created over twenty thousand clones, each with a different fragment of DNA. And they've only been able to test a fraction of them. But so far, there are six that have made antibiotics from the DNA that was inserted in them. Eventually, they want to go through this entire uh, consortium of clones and test their antibiotic ability against surrogates. Uh, These are microbes that are stand ins for other microbes. Generally, they are genetically related, but less deadly. So you can handle them. Mm
0: -hmm. Right.
1: And if the results are good, it will be sent to a facility where they can be tested on the real deal.
0: Oh, so that facility is probably like a BSL-4 facility. Maybe a BSL-3. Three. Uh,
1: three, most likely four because they're handling anthrax.
0: Oh, right. Yeah.
1: But that was a cool little article. What about you?
0: Yeah, that was pretty exciting. So mine is, so I'll do my food and agriculture microbiology piece first. And, ooh, I am really excited about this one. This one is about molecular bioinformatic technique I have recently become completely and entirely obsessed with because that's what I do as a PhD is I become obsessed over bioinformatic technique.
1: She's not lying.
0: <laughs> this is a paper entitled Elucidating Essential Genes in Plant-Associated Pseudomonas Protogens PF5 Using Transposon Insertion Sequencing, also known as TINSeq. This is the brainchild of Belina K. Fabia and Ian T. Paulson from our friends down on Da in (laughs) Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, which I hope one day to visit.
1: Oh, crikey. Oh, crikey.
0: (laughs) Okay. So this is kind of a pretty loaded paper. It's pretty bioinformatically heavy, and it has a lot of pretty in-depth, sophisticated language that even as a PhD, it's hard to understand. So I will do my best to kind of explain what they did, um, but also their findings to what they did. So transposon insertion sequencing is a technique whereby they basically create a ton of mutants and then see which genes gives the microbes superpowers, which ones become the X-Men's or which ones end up killing the host. So let me explain a little bit more. A transposon is sometimes called a jumping gene, and it's used to create mutations in a genome. When a transposon inserts into a genome, it may interrupt or modify the function of a gene or regulatory element, resulting in a change in the function of the gene and the overall organism's phenotype. So in this paper, they use what? Is that clear so far? Does that make sense to you?
1: It makes sense to me.
0: Okay. So basically, in this paper what they did is they created many different pseudomoni. Pseudomoni? Pseudomonas? Pseudomonas is
1: I like the word pseudomoni.
0: Yeah, I think that's just plural on its own, but pseudomoni sounds good. Uh, Each with a different mutation. And you try to get that you try to put enough transposons in that you have a mutation throughout the whole genome. So you can understand sort of the necessity of every gene in there. So, they created this saturated mutant pool that consisted of a transposon, which they believe occurs at least every 27 base pairs. Now, it's not completely evenly distributed across the genome. Um, there will be some spots that will be hot spots and have a lot more mutations than other spots. What they found is over 500,000 transposon mutant libraries, and there were 446 genes which are essential in the genome, meaning that. If there was a mutation in this gene, the pseudomonas died. Um, So these are genes that you actually don't see any transposon insertion sites when you do the sequencing. These are called essential genes. You with me still? Still with you. Cool. So... Pseudomonas actually has a fairly large genome for a bacteria. It has 6109 genes. So only finding 446 genes as essential that seemed really really low to me. But authors also noted that other microbes also have about 5 to 7% of their genes actually being essential. Now, you can define essential in a lot of different ways, and depending on which niche you're in or which conditions or what stressors the microbe is in, is going to depend on which genes they need to survive, or the essential genes will change depending on the environment that they are in. So Pseudomonas is one of those microbes groupings that is extremely ubiquitous. They are found everywhere, all the time, and for always and forever. The pseudomonad that was of interest to them was Pseudomonas prodigens PF5, which is a common plant microbe and has been known to be able to fight off pathogens from a wide range of crops, including cotton, wheat, cucumber, and tomatoes by producing antibiotics. What I thought was kind of interesting with this paper is they compared this particular pseudomonas strain with three other pseudomonas strains. P. semae, P. syringae, which can create snowflakes and is a common plant pathogen. You can see our other blog posts for more details on that. And Goudomonas originosa, which is an opportunistic human pathogen. And they found that all four species with vastly different niches share a large number of essential genes. But of course, also you had their own set of unique genes. They actually found that 80% of the essential genes in the plant biocontrol Pseudomonas protogens, PF5, overlapped with the essential genes P. aeruginosa, the human pathogen strain.
1: Oh, it's uh, really cool how close it is to a human pathogen.
0: yeah. Of course, the essential genes all depend on the stressors in the environment, which I've already talked about. And this study, they just looked at the microbes in the cushy setting, like auger plates, which is basically like little hotels for your microbes. It's designed to grow your microbes in a very stress-free environment. Authors did note that additional studies are needed, and they should include a range of conditions that more closely resemble the rhizospheric environment that PFI lives in. This may assist in determining niche-specific essential genes. Unsurprisingly, the essential genes they did find were involved in energy and creating amino acids. So this is one of the first studies to do transposon insertion sequences on a plant related microbe, making it really exciting study and filled with endless future research applications. Like really there's so many different ways that we can go if you can identify all the essential genes of say a pathogen and you can figure out how to knock out that specific gene, um, like we can come up with new management strategies. I think this is really going to be an interesting and useful method for future research.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the ways for future biocontrols for sure.
0: So, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about medical microbiology?
1: (laughs) All right. Now we're veering our way into pathogen profiles and medical microbiology. Can you guess what we're going to talk about today?
0: Uh, Cholera?
1: Damn straight we're talking about cholera.
0: Man, I think like one time we should just try to have a podcast where we don't mention cholera.
1: I can't help it. I mean, I researched it for so long.
0: It is pretty fascinating. All right, tell me some more things about cholera.
1: All right. So the title of the the paper is BIP-A exerts temperature-dependent translational control of biofilm-associated colony morphology and vibrio cholera.
0: <laughs> Woo, BIP, like B-I-P or Bib? B-I-P.
1: BIP. Uh, B-I-P.
0: Oh, that's so cute. So what is BIP?
1: So the people in this paper found, well, they they didn't find it. It's already been discovered, but they, they showed that this protein, BIP-A, and cholera allows them to adapt into changing temperatures.
0: Oh, both ways, warm and cold, or just...
1: It might be a little bit easier as I go along to describe how it works.
0: Okay, tell me more.
1: All right, so this protein can hold an insight on how other bacteria survive in suboptimal temperatures because it's a protein that is conserved across many bacteria.
0: Including extremophiles?
1: Uh, That I don't know. They didn't specify which bacteria, but they say it's uh, highly conserved. Mm. So it's across a lot of species. I
0: would probably say not extremophiles if it's suboptimal temperatures. Yeah. And extremophiles are kind of already adapted.
1: And they may have found a different way to adapt other than this protein. Right. So as you already know, Vibrio cholera causes a diarrheal disease and also forms biofilm, which we have described before makes up is made up of proteins and sugars and it protects bacteria
0: it's like a shielded blanket of warmth.
1: <laughs> yes
0: it just seems so cozy like the microbes are just like hey let's just like form this biofilm it's gonna protect us we're gonna feel all cozy and together
1: <laughs> just tell them a bedtime story
0: Just hang out yeah yeah not worry about everyone trying to kill us all the time
1: <laughs> but it's believed that Vibrio cholera need this biofilm in order to infect our intestines. I and mean, Vibrio cholera can be found in waters naturally. And it grown at those...
0: in t- oysters. And oysters. And other shellfish. And as planktonic bacteria floating in the ocean.
1: And grown at these temperatures, they have smooth colonies. But if you grow them at human temperatures, the colonies form biofilm. This is because the human body is a suboptimal temperature for the microbe, which I didn't know until this paper. Really? Yeah. It likes water temperatures better because it originated water.
0: But it grows so well in humans. Yeah. Interesting. It,
1: it adapted, but yeah, it, it started in the ocean or brackish water, so that's the one it likes better. Mm-hmm. And they found that this protein, BIP-A, by transposon mutagenesis, and they found that those mutants that created biofilm at lower temperatures had a mutation in that A gene. In fact, it was found that this protein reduced the expression of biofilm genes at lower temperatures. Huh? Yeah. And at higher temperatures, this protein shows to have a conformational change or how the protein is arranged, which makes it more easily degradable to heat. So I believe the current theory is in optimal temperatures, this is being made. You don't have uh, biofilm being made. And at higher temperatures, it Degrades so then you can start creating biofilm to protect yourself. Cool. Yeah.
0: They always have such fascinating ways of survival.
1: It's really remarkable. Like every gene you find in pathways, like, whoa, that's another way for it to survive. Oh, that's another way for it to survive. It just, it's endless. And future research from this lab will, I quote, address the effect of temperature and BIP A dependent regulation of bacterial physiology during host environment translations and the associated potential consequences in cholera transmission and outbreaks.
0: Wow, a little long-winded, huh?
1: Just a little bit. And this may also support the theory that biofilm enhances cholera's infectivity. They believe the bacteria that are forming biofilm, they're more prepared for incoming environment of the human body. So you have someone that has a a cholera infection, they, they poop, they contaminate the water, and they believe it's more infective. And easily infects other people that drink that water. Hmm.
0: I guess that makes a lot of sense. I never really thought about it though.
1: Yeah. So we're still kind of in the intestinal world, but we're transitioning to biotech and microbial products.
0: But I want to go.
1: Okay. I'll let you go first.
0: Okay, cool. We're going to talk about something That's not very black and white, but lives in something that is known for being black and white. Do you know what we're going to talk about? It's cute. It's cuddly.
1: Mm, Are we talking about pandas? Yeah. Nice.
0: So pandas, but we're talking about specifically panda lovemaking or potentially hypothesis as to how we might be able to make pandas make love more often or make more panda babies, sort of.
1: I mean, humans seem to be really into pandas having sex.
0: Well, they are endangered and adorable, and we would all really like to see them stay on this planet.
1: This is very true.
0: So... This has to do with smell. A lot of smell and scents are one of those forms of communication we often don't think about, but might be playing a bigger role in our relationships than we know. If you have a dog or a cat, you know that scent is a lot more Important to those kind of species than perhaps you ever think in your day to day. Even if we don't acknowledge scent playing a role in our relationship, I think it's easy to see we use scent to identify a number of things. I mean, think like poop or urine, you can smell that stuff or trash and you know it's disgusting and you don't want to go near it. Well, many smells are the product of microbes. See, see, it all. All ties back to microbes. Oh,
1: circular. It always goes back to microbes.
0: So microbes produce metabolites, and these metabolites can have scents. Pandas deploy urine and secretions from specialized glands, known as AGS, or the anogenital gland secretions. And this helps the pandas identify each other and tell other pandas if they are ready to make whoopee.
1: (laughs) Nice with the old term there.
0: thought you liked that. But what role do the microbes in these glands play in creating these odors? That was the question that Wang Ling, Zhou, Yonggang Nai, and colleagues investigated in their recent publication, Symbiotic Bacteria Mediate Volatile Chemical Signal Synthesis in a Large Solitary Mammal Species. So they use a technique called gas chromatography mass spectrometry to help them identify the chemical compounds secreted by this gland. They found 30 to 50 different compounds. They also compared the microbiome of 17 giant panda AGS, remember that is the anogenital gland secretion that helps them reproduce or they smell for, for reproductive status, and to 18 fecal samples. To see if the microbial composition of these two closely associated niches were different. And they did find distinct differences in these microbiomes. For instance, AGS were dominated by the phyla, which is the largest taxonomic classification that you have, bacteroidetes, and actinobacteria. But these were not really found in the feces microbiome. They also found that AGS were different in captive pandas compared to the wild pandas, which I thought was really interesting as well, with wild pandas having pseudomonas contributing to lipid metabolism, while captive pandas had psychobacter.
1: That just goes to show like environment and diet has a huge effect on your microbiome composition.
0: Yeah. And so they, they went further into say the diet and um, environment of the microbiome of their AGS might be contributing to the reproductive status or the pandas being willing to get down with each other.
1: Getting jiggy with it.
0: So taken to- together, what does this mean?
1: I don't know. What does it mean?
0: It means the microbes and the AGS may be contributing to the odors that help pandas get down.
1: Na, 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 na. On the
0: flip side, an AGS with an unhealthy microbiome or dysbiosis may interfere with panda reproduction. Future research may include experimenting with the AGS microbiome or nutrition of captive pandas to try to promote certain microbes to see if it helps with panda breeding effort.
1: I definitely think the easier route would probably be adjusting their diet to see if that affects them.
0: Yeah. I think it'd be so cool if microbes save pandas. I mean, microbes save everything all the time. They also destroy everything all the time. They're basically just God. All right, your turn.
1: All right. We're veering back towards biotech and microbial products.
0: So what microbial product are you going to tell me about? Poop. (sighs) Of course. Poop transplants. Poop
1: transplants. Yeah, buddy. This comes from an article called fecal transplants could help patients cancer immunotherapy drugs so as oncologists deploy many strategies to stop cancer a new study has preliminary results suggesting that fecal transplants may show benefits to patients whom immunotherapy drugs have previously not been effective during a fecal transplant a stool sample from a healthy donor is moved into the gut of a sick person or someone that has a dysbiotic gut microbiome, and amazingly, the gut microbes from the healthy individuals will populate in the sick person's gut microbiome and improve their overall health. Woo! This method is already in use for colon infections that have not responded to other treatments with good success. So, such as uh, C. diff infections.
0: I feel like we always talk about C. diff too.
1: But these tests are a start to using the treatment for cancer patients. Researchers found that some patients that had more success with certain cancer drugs had a gut microbiome that was different from patients that saw less improvement. And those that took antibiotics shortly or right after treatment started had lower success rates of the treatment. This led to the idea that the gut microbiome could be transferred somehow from the healthy patient to a sick patient, and this could make the drugs more effective, AKA fecal transplants.
0: Poop transplant. And
1: a quote from this article says, examining biopsies of gut and tumor tissue, the researchers found that post-transplant, the patient's guts had more of a type of immune cell that senses invaders and activates the immune system. And these cells also infiltrated the tumor cells along with T cells, quote unquote, cold tumors or tumors that weren't being attacked had become hot or visible to the immune system. So it's like the healthy gut microbiome is priming our immune system to go after these tumors. Huh? Yeah. So initial studies are showing some great promise.
0: Yeah. Any of our listeners, have you had a fecal transplant? Let us know. We'd love to hear.
1: We would love to hear. I'm interested to hear about it.
0: But we don't want to hear about other poop things. No. No. Not yet. Anyways, we don't know our listeners that well. <laughs> We're not on that sort of basis with you all.
1: Not that kind of relationship as of right now.
0: Not yet. We'll see where the future goes. <laughs> Anyways, you got anything else, John? Nope. Excellent. Well, my microbe friends, that's it for this month's da bomb. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. What was your favorite piece of microbe news for February let us know by sending us an email at Gales at gmail.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. I'm never going to be able to sing it in a tone that's not that anymore. <laughs> it just fits so perfectly. I don't know why I didn't see it before, but I'll never unsee it again.
1: Well, as long as we don't play any musical notes, we won't be sued.
0: Yep. And I mean, Disney's never going to listen to us.
1: You never know. They have ears everywhere. Have you seen the size of Mickey's ears? That's true. They can hear everything.
0: Or you can find us on social media at gals on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, and Facebook.
1: Now that you have some cool new science facts, consider wowing your friends with them. As always, feel free to share this podcast with a friend or family member. That is, or should be, and we all should be, shouldn't we? Microbe curious.
0: Always microbial obsessed. We hope you enjoyed listening and we hope. You and your mighty microbes are making marvelous micro moments right now. And now. Now. And now. Now. And now. And now. And now. And
1: now. And now.
0: And
1: now. And now. Okay. Bye. Bye.